My name is Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point, and I'm going to be reading the scripture today. It'll be um, Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 31. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 31, on pages 1604 and 1605 in your Bible. And I'll begin. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over them when no one was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room and where, and where I may eat, oh yeah, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he broke and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on this table. The Son of Man will go as as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. This uh, morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Pastor Nick and I are going to have a conversation. We're going to go through this sermon together. 
and as they're bringing the chairs down. And part of that is why, is because I asked them to. Um, some of you know, I've shared with you in the past, that uh, I struggle with depression. And due to a, a recent spate of um, challenges, family challenges, um, an ailing uh, mother back home um, who can't take care of herself, the brother who takes care of her in the hospital with a kidney failure, uh, a real challenge with one of my sons, and, and most recent, my wife coming down with pneumonia. Um, it's been kind of a season. And so uh, this morning, all this week, I've been working on this, this sermon, actually for a longer period than that, and just putting the ideas together in my mind in a way that I was confident with was increasingly difficult. So I, had, I asked Pastor Nick to come and sit down with me. It turns out um, both myself, Pastor Mike, who's had some health challenges and death in the family, Pastor Nick with, with other issues, um, there's been a good bit of challenges amongst the, the pastors that, that handle adults and probably all the pastors, to be honest with you. Probably some of you too. And we could, uh, we could use your prayers. Nick, you got any comments you want to make? No? Yeah. Mike's had a lot of challenges, too, with the deaths in his family, and he just found out some bad news about his mom. And, um, yeah, just, and, you know, of course, Pastor Nick always has issues. That's just the next one I'd love if you guys pray. Um, today's sermon uh, from Luke 22, 1 through 31, I'm calling the master plan. There's this strange paradox in this particular text. Um, you see the enemies in the first six verses, they delight when they come together to conspire to put Christ to death. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they have been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. They want to take his place. They don't quite recognize that he's the Messiah, but they do see him as a, um, a challenge to leadership in Israel. And they want to put him away as much as possible so that when Judas uh, arises, and is willing to betray Jesus, they jump at the chance. But what's really interesting is when you drop down to verse 14, when Jesus is at his final uh, Passover meal, it says that he eagerly desired to have this meal with his disciples. And if you've been following along carefully with us through this series in Luke, uh, there's at least three very concrete times that Jesus predicts his death, his burial, and his resurrection that he be put to death and suffer uh, for sinners. He, so he's very clear as to what's going on. And uh, I think this is because Jesus has a, has a master plan that's in play. Um, and today, Nick and I are going to talk a little bit about this master plan. I see two components of it. Uh, first, Jesus' plan is to use his enemies to establish his kingdom. That um, God has a way of using all things he works all things together for the good of those, right, who are called according to his purpose, even, even wickedness and sins. He uses his enemies to establish his kingdom. And then secondly, Jesus' plan is to prepare his disciples to continue his mission. 
Um, so Pastor Nick is going to talk a little bit about this, this idea of how Jesus' plan is to use his enemies to establish his kingdom. Yeah, there, there, are some, there are some connections in passages like this that are more difficult to make the more times you've read them and the more times you've read them religiously speaking. But um, if it was a movie, you'd feel differently. So, for example, you've probably seen a film in which the good guys and the bad guys were kind of against each other, and it looked like the good guys had enough to win. But then one of the good guys got sufficiently afraid they weren't going to win that they decided to betray the good guys and go to the bad guys, and knowing that that would make the difference and the bad guys would win, then they would know they'd be on the winning team. And um, that's like this a constant theme that like somebody, if they would have finished, they would have dealt with the stress of it, and they would have believed, and they would have stayed on the right course, they would have won. But instead, they lost heart and they defected and betrayed, thinking that if they did so, that betrayal would reverse the course of the fortunes and, and e- the evil side would win, but they would be part of it and get that spoil of war as part of it. And then, through some unforeseen means, good prevails and the betrayer is lost. Right? It's like a fundamental myth of all of humanity. Right, that this happens. And in the story of Jesus, this happens, this incredible betrayal that like the, the teachers of the law wanted to, be, they wanted Jesus dead, but they couldn't get him. The people just loved him too much. He was speaking right at the corruptions that they hated. He was telling them the truth about themselves. They really loved him, and, they, and these guys couldn't do anything about it. And then at this moment, it's the first time Satan reappears again in Luke's gospel from when he was tempting Jesus in the desert. He appears here again to push this forward, to get this, this important, def- like, um, defection to the other side, right? And meanwhile, like, while that's all happening, all that cloak and dagger stuff is happening, there's this other passage that most people get puzzled about where it's like, Jesus is like, okay, go into town. There'll be this guy with a water bottle. Follow the guy with a water bottle. Then ask this question. And it's very easy to be like, okay, why is that in there? And um, there's a theories I'm not going to share with you, but like, I think the most obvious is, is that it demonstrates that Jesus had this all planned, all the way down to what servant was going to be walking down what street, whose servant he was, what house that was at, the disposition of the person who owned the house, him having an upper room already partially prepared for the Passover, and that he was going to use that room. Every detail is planned by God, and every detail— is planned by his enemies. There's lots of plans functioning simultaneously. And part of the glory of the plan of, of God is, is that he executes his plan through the plan of his enemies. Okay? Now, he could just crush them. He could just crush his enemies. And if he did, he just crushed his enemies, then he would be shown to be great, and his enemies would all be dead, and God would be God. And God would be glorious in doing that. Okay? But God is interested more than that, apparently. He's interested in being more glorious than that and accomplishing more redemption than that. So what he does instead is he lets his enemies conspire, right? Psalm 2, the nations rage against the Lord who's on the throne. And then he creates a certain kind of Christ, a certain kind of anointed one, who Jesus is the perfect anointed one. That the enemies rage in their plan against that one, and that one has a certain kind of character. That in their raging against, in their punishing, and their attacking of this person, everything that's evil about his enemies is shown forth. And then God works his plan through that raging so that his truth overcomes his enemies. And the, his enemies devour themselves, 
And in the testing of the one anointed one, his salvation comes, right? And Jesus is that one Messiah, that one perfect Messiah, right? Until he goes to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit to everybody who ever believes in him, who receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit to act similarly to him, right? And so God accomplishes much more than just crushing his enemies and being glorified. One, he is more glorified because he works through his enemies, and he causes his enemies to devour themselves. And he shows evil for what it is before he destroys it. And he shows good for what it really is before it triumphs. So that when it triumphs, evil is absolutely seen as evil, and good is absolutely seen in its beauty, and he is seen as the one who reigns over all of it, and he was way ahead of everyone all the time. His sovereignty is glorified. His goodness is glorified. His power is glorified. Everything about him is seen to be great, right? Two, as the enemies devour themselves, some of them realize what they're doing, and they turn to him. So there's a redemptive plan for his enemies that as they rage against him, against his Christ— and as they try to punish the one who speaks the truth, some of them realize before the end what is happening, and they turn, right? I'm going to talk more, a lot more about this on Easter, about the two thieves on the cross. In Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, all they record about these thieves is that they're crucified next to Jesus, and they hurl insights at Jesus, or insults at Jesus. But Jesus is on the cross three hours. And in Luke's gospel, he records what almost, very likely happened right at the very end of that three hours— Whereas one of the guys is still hurling themselves at Jesus after everybody's basically left. And one guy has broken. He's bled enough. He realized he's going to die enough. Something happens in him, and he goes, wait a second. He's watched Jesus on the cross for three hours now, and he goes, wait a second. This guy doesn't deserve this. This is—he's not who they say he is. We are. We deserve this. We're getting what we deserve. This guy doesn't have nothing that he deserves. And then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. See, there's some portion of his enemies that sees before it's too late, before that wave of destruction comes, as they attack his anointed one, and they realize what they're doing, and they repent. And that is God's plan of redemption, right? But his, his anointed one is not left alone. In his Christ— he glorifies his Christ, right? He, like, he lifts Jesus' name above every name, but also in us. He uses that suffering to transform us and change us and to teach us about joy and the work of perseverance that creates maturity. It is in all of the crushing, right, that the new wine comes, that the new character, the remaking of the image of God, like it says in Ephesians 4, in true righteousness and holiness. Through the work of the Spirit, in the difficulties of life is formed, and there isn't apparently another way to do that that fits into everything else. And the Lord's master plan is to accomplish all three of those things through his enemies. And then to add to that, once we come to faith in Christ and begin to live like him, we need to begin to expect the same kind of rejection that Jesus faced from his enemies. They rejected his doctrine. They rejected his, his works of, of healing. They rejected his rule so that at his triumphal entry, the Pharisees say to him, why don't you stop, tell the people to stop worshiping you. He says, if they stop, the rocks will, will cry out. And so as we live in, uh, into our faith, we need to be what I call woke Christians. We need to uh, be aware that we're, uh, we're going to be under persecution, that we're going to be under challenge but that that persecution, that challenge, that rejection ought to produce some positive things in us. 
And James 1, 2-4 puts it this way. It says, uh, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so, Nick, here comes again your uh, proclivity to talk about substance, yeah. that, that um, uh, we Christians need to be substantive if we're going to endure the kind of pressure that Jesus endured, which is, which is the plan. It's, it's part of his master plan for us to mature is to be able to be tough through difficulty. You want to talk yeah. about, a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, right, the focus of this passage isn't the cross yet. It's actually the Last Supper, right? And in this passage, seven times or eight times, um, the Passover is mentioned. And sometimes we think of the Passover as God's first great act of salvation, right? But it's, it's also, it also is God's first great singular defining act. So the people, the Jewish people who were under the slavery of Egypt, who were being destroyed, they were destroying God's people, they were acting as God's enemy, right? God used the Passover and the ten plagues to free his people from slavery, but he also said, you will have this meal, the Passover meal, forever. Because though this is a singular event that saves you, you are going to remember this event, and this singular event forever is going to define you. Okay? So the singular event that saves you is also doing double duty, because it's also the event that defines you. Right? And so for all the years going forward, the Jewish people would have the Passover feast. It was the first month of their year. It was the primary festival of their calendar. It was the time where they remembered, we are a people, and we are God's people because God saved us out of slavery. And because of that, this is who we are, and this is our law, and this is our identity. And in the Last Supper, Jesus does nothing less than doing the same thing again. He's saying, I'm going to the singular act that is going to save all of humanity from sin. And this event that is going to save you, I am now giving you a ritual to remember often so that this event will not just save you, but forever in terms of your character and who you are, it is going to define you, right? And that's fundamental to this passage, that if we're going to be woke, if we're going to not get angry at the fact that God works through his enemies, and that it's through their abuse and misuse of us sometimes that God is going to glorify himself and bring them to himself and show his own glory and all that. If you can wake up to that and, and receive it, then you can count all suffering as pure joy. I mean, just a few pages later in the book of Acts, Luke will record James and John getting whipped and beaten up by these Pharisees, and it says they leave rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. What does worthy mean? That Well, here's what it means. If there is corruption in the anointed one, in the one that God is using against the, the raging of the enemies, if there's corruption here, he can't use that person because there's no contrast. There's no contrast of beauty, right? And so if we're counted worthy to suffer, if he's using us in his plan of redemption, he has to be doing something in us, right? And if he's using us in that, then there's evidence that God is actually doing something in us to use us to face his enemies, to work his plan, to show his glory, to turn some of his enemies around, and to change us. And if God is working in us, that means that we're, we're in his love, we're in his election, we're in his salvation. That is, that is assuring, that's really good news for us. So like getting whipped for the name of Jesus is like really good news, and they understood that. But we don't normally understand that. This event that is going to save us, it is meant to define us. And we have to continually be defined by the cross. Not just that it forgives your sins, but that it shows the master plan of Jesus. 
that he is always using his enemies to bring about his glory, using our suffering to bring about his glory, using even our sins and the sins of others to bring about his glory, and your good and the salvation of our neighbors. So, Nick, when you think about our current state of Christianity and how I think in my lifetime some of the things that the church taught about the family, about uh, sexuality, some basic things are now not seem to be uh, true, not being to be true. And that, that brings a bit of a crushing effect on God's people. Um, how, how do we respond? How should we respond in, in the face of what seems to be more and more um, uh, of us being considered outcasts in, within the society? We seem to be stranger and stranger in terms of our, mm-hmm. of our beliefs. And um, how do we respond properly? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if those of you here two years ago, I think Russell Moore's mm-hmm. statement that it's our job to keep Christianity strange is fundamental. Um, but you will lose all of our children to the world if we can't explain why there is a greater beauty in the ways of God than in the ways of the world. Mm. Because there is, they will go over to it. Because um, when you are slandered and when things are said about you that are false and when they paint you in a negative light, over time, especially if our kids are subject to that a lot, um, and if their identity is not formed before that, I, those ideas come in, mm-hmm. they don't, who wants to fight that? Who wants to be disapproved of? And young people are the worst at um, thinking they're being original when they're really conforming to others right? Mm-hmm. They think they're being original because they're rejecting their parents. So they go, oh, I'm so original because I'm not doing what my parents did. And I'm going to do exactly what my friends do, right? And so they're at the height of their conformity. They think that they're being these incredibly independent creatures. And so unless we explain that to them and help them see not just the truth of the gospel, but the wisdom of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, um, the nobility of the gospel, that the gospel is not just like not evil. It's insanely beautiful. And what that, do, what that does in, a, in a, a minority community is one of two things, okay? It either causes us to be so separate from the other people that we create a completely different society, and we, it creates kind of a ghetto effect, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that ch- children love to escape ghettos, right? Um, or secondly, we become really, 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 really good at explaining who we are. And the, here's what happens when that happens. We learn who we are. So we think we understand who we are. We don't understand who we are. We adults, we, we know just enough to not quit right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of us, if like, we really talk, try to talk more deeply about who we are, what we really believe, what really defines us, what that really means, mm-hmm. um, we go about two questions deep, and then we're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Why are you asking mm-hmm. me that? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about these things freely with each other. And we're not digging deeper. But if you want to be a vibrant minority mm-hmm. among a majority culture that does not approve of you, those are your two options. You can either get a wise and lose all your children, or you can learn who you are in a deeper, more profound sense and, and be more beautiful and pure and win over the majority culture by the beauty of your lives. But there's, there's, no, there's no other option. Like 50 mm-hmm. years ago in America, we could have been a nice church that had nice Sunday morning meetings. We could have had an enormous amount of hypocritical corruption in our church, and our church could grow, and people could be like, oh, I'm a good Christian person, and blah, 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 blah. Great. Well, no, that's terrible, actually. But I mean, that right, could, but that, you could grow. That. You could grow at least. Like our right. budgets would have been fine. Right. Right. But like, that is not an option anymore. Okay. 
Um, if it gets out that you're a Bible-believing Christian, you have only to lose culturally and nothing to gain. I hear, I hear from more and more different professions now that they're like, I have to keep it totally quiet that I'm a Christian at work. And it was like, at first it was like public school teachers, or at first it was university, and then it was public school teachers, and now it's people in the medical fields can't say anything about that they think it's child abuse to do, to like medically transition kids at seven years old, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and like you start going through and more and more people are like, I can't, I can't even talk about, right? Google has fired people over like having non-politically correct views and like, so more and more this is happening and like if, if you're gonna, if you're gonna deal with that, you've got to grow deeper. And um, when that happens, like there's this old saying that those things that can't continue to go on the way they are don't. Like, there's a point where the kind of shallow, controlling nature of secularity is going to implode. It's not producing good things. Just look around. Like, wealth is being produced by people's free labor. But in terms of, like, in terms of the philosophies of worldliness right now, it's, it's destroying families. It's ruining relationships. We don't know how to be friends anymore. Um, like, it's, it's really amazing how, how poorly it's going. And what the Bible teaches over and over again is it's actually the remnant— that keeps things going as well as they are. And so I think we, we have to choose to be sufficiently deep. Otherwise, listen, if you're not going to choose to be very deep in the gospel, you need to move. Do not live in Madison. You're going to lose your kids. If you're not going to grow deep enough to teach your kids the depths of the gospel in the face of a secular progressivism or a radical individualism or a— radical self-expressivism, all that stuff. If you're not deep enough, you need to move to like central Kentucky or like East, ne East Nebraska or something like that. Because that's your only other option unless you want to like hand your kids over to people who believe literally the opposite of you. I, I don't, I don't tell you. And so, I, I mean, I'll do anything we can. You tell us what you need and we'll do it for you. But that's, that's really your only option. When I sit down with kids and I explain to them the, how the gospel works and how secularity can never produce the beauty that, it, that it's after and how the gospel can, the response is usually like, wow, I had no idea the Christian faith had those kind of answers, right? But in the absence of that, the sheer overwhelming barrage of a opposite message, and remember, there's, and there's also the culture that they're just cooking in, Every media voice, every assumption, it's in the cut of the fabric, it's in the way the food is prepared, it's like it's in everything. And we're just absorbing it. We're absorbing consumerism. We're absorbing a lack of taking personal responsibility. We're absorbing a sense that there's nothing bigger than just what's physically and materially true. There's, there's nothing spiritual or, or moral that's out there. We're absorbing the relativism rather than that there are truths that we must submit to and believe in. We're just absorbing this stuff, and it's no wonder that we and our children and everybody we know who are Christians are kind of like, I don't know if we can believe this stuff. And yet Jesus says, this event is to define you. This event. My death and resurrection. That event. That there are fundamental truths like that you are a sinner, that I am a sinner, that he died for us, that he uses his enemies to bring about his glory, that suffering he uses sovereignly to be redemptive, that there, are, there is such a thing as the obligation of loving your neighbor and your family and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And these are objective truths that guide and govern your life and redefine your humanity and through the Spirit remake the image of God in true righteousness and holiness, it says in Ephesians 4. 
And without that depth, without that, that centering in the truth of the gospel, you don't have a shot at it. And it's one of the reasons why at the center of Christian practice isn't just reading your Bible, but is a ritual of remembrance. The ritual of remembering the event that defines us. Does that make sense? So part of the master plan is for us to grow in maturity that we may be able to stand up against um, the whole variety of opposing ideas that are out there. That we are woke, like the language you use, like the culture uses the word woke to mean like you agree with us. Right. If you agree with us, we'll say you're woke. Right. And then that's basically like a stamp, like we'll tattoo on you like that you're good. And so you can do whatever you want. As long as you're called woke, you can do whatever you want. But what you're saying is no, woke should mean something like you should understand reality. Yes, we should understand who we are and we shouldn't be surprised at the opposition but Nick, I, I hear you saying that we need to be more and more alert about the need to be knowledgeable, godly Christians, able to teach our, our children, each other, the deep truths of the faith in an increasingly secular uh, society. Yeah, if you're going to live in Madison, yes, sir. Um, Jesus' plan was to accomplish redemption um, Ultimately, we see the beauty of Jesus is that he shows us how to love through his dying. So his enemies um, are showing their evil by killing him. But he shows the depth of his love by being willing to forgive not only the, the, his enemies uh, who particularly killed him, but also all that would come to him in repentance and faith, that there is a um, there is a depth of love that we experience through Jesus's passion that isn't it isn't a cheap grace since his since his blood is the atoning sacrifice for sin, but it is a a uh, a free flowing grace, something that we don't merit, something that's that's given to us. Um, uh, uh, that we could never own and earn. Uh, yeah. Speak a little bit about the, the love of God that we see even through the sins of men. Yeah, I think that verse that you quoted in James is pretty critical. That it is, it is loving for God to, um, to choose instead of just to destroy his enemies. Mm. Because remember, the Bible says in a number of places, there was a point not that long ago when we were his enemies. All of us. Amen. Even Amen. if you've come to Christ. Like Amen. Ephesians 2 says, you were all servants of the kingdom of darkness, basically, <laughs> of the rule of the air, which is Satan. I mean, it literally says in Ephesians 2, you used to serve Satan. He was your master. So if God had chose at any moment when we were in that place to just crush his enemies, then we would all be dead, dead and dead. And so he says, it's in the grace of God to win over his enemies through the suffering of his servant through his own glorification, right? And that, and the, the, one of the reasons why we can accept that is because Jesus is the first one who truly does it perfectly. He suffers both to save us from sin, but also, also to demonstrate the evilness of evil and the beauty of the truth. And that in that, people can be won over and saved. Does that make sense? And many are in the story of the gospel. But I think, again, that leads us back to the fact that when we then are filled with the Spirit and we are, we are to stand there in place of Jesus, 
It's one of the reasons why all of, oh, virtually all of the attacks of, uh, against corruption in the Bible are not against political corruption, but are against spiritual corruption within God's people. Because you can have, you can have political corruption, and you can speak what the, the culture loves to say, speaking truth to power, right? But the power differential isn't, isn't necessarily a truth differential. The person who has more power can have more truth than the person who has less power. There's no reason that can't be the case. The assumption is, is that, that power tends to corrupt. And so when you're speaking truth to power, power has corrupted those who have it. But the problem is, is that it doesn't work if the people speaking the truth to power are themselves corrupt, which is normally the case. And so if you're going to be in a position where God's enemies are going to attack you and you're going to speak the truth and live the truth and be the truth, there cannot be corruption. It has to be obvious that what is there is, is godliness and truthfulness and honesty and humility and that we're repenting of every sin that we know of and we're turning to him with all that we are and we're seeking to grow in true holiness and righteousness by the power of the Spirit, failing in the right direction, striving towards the truth, keeping in step with the Spirit, being transformed in the mind of Christ, loving others like we want to be loved ourselves. And it's only when in the people of God, in the church, that we reject all corruption in ourselves and we encourage and are constantly exhorting those that are our neighbors in the faith to give up their sin and to come more fully towards him, that we could have the kind of purity necessary to be the living stones that are that temple that can stand in the world and win over many of God's enemies. And that's why, like, yeah, I have lots of things I'd love to say about the federal government, how I think it could run better. A, I'm probably not qualified to talk about that. And B, that's not God's main interest. For, at least for us here in the local church. God is interested in what's going on in the government. He's, he, the kingdom of God is over all things, and he's interested in everything that happens in the world. But the mission he has given us in the local church, what we are dealing with here, is the beauty of the purity of the bride of Christ who's being prepared for her wedding day. Spotless and without wrinkle, full of godliness in all ways. The beauty of Ephesians 5 is not that the, that the body of Christ would be like filled with attractive people. The beauty of the body of Christ is the spotless beauty of its moral and spiritual purity and maturity in God. Right? That brings us to our second point. So the first is that he uses enemies to establish his kingdom. and We certainly see that on the, on the cross. And, and, then, and then secondly, Jesus prepares his disciples to continue his mission. Um, Luke 22, 24-28 talks about that. A dispute also arose among his disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So we see this uh, contrast, Nick, in, in leadership, that in the world, uh, those who are in charge are authoritative and they give orders and they retain power and they're self-centered. That's the picture that we get here. And then others exalt in their title of do-gooders, benefactors, workers of good. And Jesus says, we're not going to be like that. But we ought to be like waiters, we ought to be like the younger brother. In my house, my younger brother was the one who got all the lowest chores. I know it wasn't like that in your house, but in my house, we would just grab him around his head and 
give them all the wash the dishes chores, right? The idea is that the younger brother understood that he was a servant. So we ought to be we ought to be woke waiters. We ought to understand the the need to be holy, and yet uh, be the kind of people that serve um, the body of Christ. Um, I often, I, I go to, my two favorite restaurants in town are Laredo's and Olive Garden. And, uh, and one of the things I can tell you about going to Laredo's and Olive Garden is that there never can be in too many waiters. So when I, when I want some more tortilla chips, I want enough waiters around to bring them in. Or if I want some breadsticks, uh, you could. And so I, I have found um, in the church that there can never be enough people who are willing to serve. If we're going to be godly, if we're going to accomplish our ministry, we need godly people in our hospitality ministries. I'm certainly in need of more godly deacons, folks that are willing to be alert and godly and willing to give of themselves. I want to tell you a story about being a waiter. So last Sunday, Pastor Nick, whenever he's preaching, is prone to come into the church about, about five-ish in the, in the morning. I notice because occasionally I'll come in that early if I've got meetings or stuff to prepare for. I'll see him. And this past, last Sunday was one of those Sundays. And I came in about 5.30, and I knocked on his door, and he opened uh, the door, and then I saw this look on his face. And in addition to having on his Packers gear, the yellow and the green and all that ugly stuff, I, I don't know why he doesn't put on orange and I don't know why he doesn't put on orange and blue, but that's another story. Um, I just saw this uh, just overwhelming sense of, like, fatigue. As, as the waiter, he was preparing the spiritual meal for the whole congregation. And I could tell that he probably felt like he needed to be eating a little bit more himself. Um, he's, a, he's a woke waiter. One of the things I'm trying to learn in my own pastoral ministry is how to be able to serve fully when you feel like you're on E. Um, uh, sometimes it's just necessary. Uh, we have another, uh, there's another woman in our church. Her name is uh, uh, Heidi. can't think of Heidi's Wiley. last name. Wiley. Wiley. She, uh, is, we have uh, a, a Sarah and Mike uh, and David Hale, Hale, their daughter, Louisa is recovering from a, a heart uh, ailment. And so Heidi is uh, at the hospital with Sarah as they've been trying to nurse this child to health and just uh, investing her lives in, in that way so that, um, so that Sarah can be comforted. Uh, we, we need more woke waiters around. Yeah. Pastor Nick, any thoughts on that? Yeah, one of, the, one of the things I said last week was when you look at passages in the Synoptic Gospels, like you compare the same story told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, in, in this one, it's kind of interesting. It, sh- it shows kind of the poisonousness of gossip because it starts out as a conversation about who's going to betray Jesus, right? Well, who's going to betray Jesus? Well, not me, not you. What about you? Right? And they're work- as they work on that, the, the gossiping conversation transmutes into like, well, certainly not me because I'm the best. Mm. Right, like maybe the two of us or the three of us are like, which one of us is the best? Because like they're not apostles yet in the, in the sense historically the way we see them. They're not the heroes of the faith yet. They're not in charge of anything. So what is who's the greatest? To me, who's the greatest is the one least likely to betray Jesus in this context. 
right? The, the greatest, most devoted follower of Jesus. It turns out Jesus is going to say a couple verses later, you're all going to run. <laughs> you're, you're all going to run. I prayed for one of you so that maybe like one of you will come back and then he'll bring all the rest of you back. But like, you're all going to fail. You're all going to betray me on some level. He's like, but here's what you need to understand. Now, in the other Gospels, it, Jesus says in this story, he says, the, the rulers of the Gentiles, and the, the language Matthew and Mark uses, lord it over them. Meaning that they're in charge and they have the authority and they use that authority and they kind of lord the authority over other people. Luke takes it one step further here. He says, the rulers of the Gentile, they have authority over them and they call themselves benefactors. They call themselves now that's, that, is a, that gets at a very insidious thing that it's so easy to just read over, right? So if you are in charge of something, like if, you're in, in, if anything is your responsibility, generally speaking, in the responsibility, there is the work, the way you serve the thing, and there are the benefits, the way the thing serves you. So there, there are benefits I receive from being a senior pastor. People do stuff for me. And like, if I didn't receive some of those things, I probably wouldn't make it. People do nice things for me because I'm the senior pastor, and some of those things I receive, and they really help me make it. And I, therefore, I accept those things as part of what I can rightly take as the leader because I need the help, because the responsibility is very large, right? But, but because of that, it's very easy to say, well, I'll just take all this stuff because my life is really hard, right? Um, we talked about this last service. Um, when, you, when you read about American history, there is this whole— there is this whole literature that arose among white slaveholders, mainly, about being benefactors to the black race, right? It's, in socialized books, it's sometimes still called the white man's burden. White people persuaded themselves that they were doing black people a favor, right? That, like, honest to goodness, no. It's, and, and like, they were like, well, you know, these guys can't do it. Like, they, they haven't made boats, and they haven't made gunpowder yet, so what could they possibly know? And so, like, we'll take care of them. We're doing them a huge favor. And it, it turned out that none of the predictions, like, like Southern whites were like, look, if we let these people go, they're all going to starve to death. Well, it turns out they didn't, right? Like, it, it turns out people can step up. And so, now, you know, you're like, oh, those, those stupid white people from the South. Okay, yeah. They're, those people are just like you, okay? They're just like me. Right? Like, if I, like, we all want to believe, like, if I, well, if I was in Louisiana in 1847, I would have been an abolitionist. Like, even if you're black, you wouldn't have been an abolitionist. Okay? Like, Lloyd and I, we, we did the series with the staff, and the African-American guy from Harvard who was talking about this, he, he made very clear, when African-Americans in America had the rights to own other blacks, they did. Like, we're all the same. You would not have been an abolitionist. Okay? And, like, you, like, because in, I, I guarantee in your life right now, there is some authority that you have, some place where you have a little bit of power, and you are taking the benefits of it. And you think of yourself as doing more for them than they're doing for you. You're the benefactor. But what's really happening is you're taking what you can get and excusing yourself from not serving them like a waiter. Does that make sense? And so it's, I see this like in my, in my work, and this is something I'm always vigilant about as a pastor and as a dad, is like, I do so much work for these people. I should be able to benefit from it. But then what naturally happens is the minute I let myself benefit some from it, which I have to do to survive, I start going, well, I can benefit a little bit more, and I can give out a little bit less. And it, you see, it's a process. It's not like a momentary corruption. It's a creeping corruption for everyone. 
So the dad's kind of like, I could listen, I work hard all day. I can watch TV all night. I, yeah, like I could tell one of my daughters is struggling with something, but like I'll talk to her tomorrow because I need this, blah, 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 blah. You start, you start feeding into you. Well, I'm a benefactor. I, my whole life is for this family. I do everything for these people. I blah, blah, blah. And you start to say, I'm okay with this. And listen, this is how pastors justify to themselves porn habits and sleeping with members of their congregations. This is how dads and moms indulge habits of late-night alcoholism and moving away from their spouse in terms of love and, like, demanding that the parenting model be their parenting model and their spouse go along with it. Or, like, there's all kinds of corruptions that rush in when we start to just see that we are working so hard and that we are the benefactors. Everybody gets so much from us, so I'm entitled to behave this way, and yet we're really serving less and less while we're indulging more and more, and that is the corruption Jesus is reversing. It's that creeping corruption in all of us. He's like, no, you have to reverse that. You have to be the one who serves like the lowest possible person. And there are times where even servants get to go and play and do their thing and eat and please themselves. But you must see yourself absolutely as a servant beneath it, the lowest, the youngster, the waiter. Amen. Sorry, that was kind of a long bit, but it's important. So that our lives aren't to please ourselves. Our lives are to please the Lord, to serve others, to find, to find real life in, in, the, in the selfless sacrifice. Right, and that's necessary for us to grow in substance because if we please ourselves, the things we please ourselves with are going to be more and more worldly, more and more vaporous, more and more just like what Paul says, please, like being led by our stomachs. Mm -hmm. Like our instincts mm -hmm. and our hormones and our angers and our resentments lead us into these things and we gratify them. And we just become shallower, uglier, more broken people, um, pleased by wickedness mm -hmm. and little things. But when we serve other people, we find things like friendship and growth and companionship and all the kinds of deeper pleasures that will exist forever that we were made for. And so that transformation is necessary for our growth as well. And so um, the last point that we make that um, Luke makes in his, his gospel here is uh, something that we all need to pay attention to. Uh, Luke 22 and 31 says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so um, Peter has this very distinct uh, habit of, though he loves the Lord and is clear, having the sin of, of disavowing Jesus. Can you imagine that? Uh, the next verse he says, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to death and to prison, he says. But in a very short order, he betrays him three times. Um, but the really neat part of this is that he can turn back. And later on, when the Apostle Paul challenges him in chapter 2, when uh, he uh, hangs out with the Gentiles and, and has Gentile food, but when the Jews come, then he wants to be the holy Jew. He's called out as, as a person against the very gospel message that brings Jews and Gentiles together. And so he's against, uh, Peter has found himself uh, in, in his history, disavowing God and disavowing the gospel, yet he can, he can be forgiven. And um, isn't that a great blessing to know? Mm -hmm. 
that even if the apostle uh, 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 Peter can, can sin and be returned, so can you. And so there's this last message of hope. Yeah, when he says to Peter that he's prayed for his faith not to fail, one mm-hmm. of the things to recognize is that failure and being a failure are very different things, right? You, you will fail. You become a failure when you quit. And the same is true of the gospel, right? Like, you, you don't become a failure when you sin. You become a failure when you, when you give up. You turn away the faith. You say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And, um, and in, in one of the gospels, it says that, like, on the third time Peter betrayed Jesus, he swore and he called down curses God from himself. heaven mm-hmm. on himself if he wasn't telling the truth. Like, he blasphemed in one of the most extreme ways possible. Like, he didn't just be like, I'm not sure I know him. He was like, I don't know him. And like, and then he, a bunch of foul words that I won't say because it'll offend you, but like, that's what he did. <laughs> and, he, and so like, and when Jesus finally restores him in John 20, it's so, he's so kind. He calls him up on the beach. He's cooking breakfast for him. Like, he speaks kindly to him, but he also is very pointed because he asks him if he loves him three times, and it, it breaks Peter down into tears, but it breaks him down in such a way that he comes back fully and wholeheartedly and completely. And so, um, don't give up and keep coming back. Is Like, always fail in the right direction. And even if you failed, like, really in the wrong direction, you can turn around. The, the entire Christian faith is based on the concept of repentance, mm. the reversal of course. Mm. That's all God wants. He just wants the reversal of our bad course and to turn to him. And he rushes in when that happens. Amen. So the master plan is for Jesus to uh, uh, use his enemies to establish his kingdom. And all of us, I like that Nick pointed out, that without Christ, left to our own devices, we all have been enemies of God. But the grace of God allows us to come to faith in him. And secondly, Jesus' master plan is to prepare us to continue his mission, even to prepare us for the sins that you will make. Uh, You will make, you will sin, but return wholeheartedly and serve the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that uh, you have a plan. Your plan isn't thwarted by the frailties and the wickedness of men. In fact, it encompasses those frailties and wickedness. I don't know how, uh, Lord, uh, you're, you're, you're so knowledgeable, you're so uh, brilliant that you anticipate our wrongdoing and it can turn us from wrong to right. We thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we would take to heart this discussion about how important it is to grow in godliness, not only for, our, for ourselves, but for our families and, and for each other. And so that the gospel can be shared more effectively with, with our community. Bless us, Lord. Bless us with the, the faith that to continue to serve you well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.